Chapter Fourteen of Carpenter's Geographical Reader Asia by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. China. The Chinese occupy about one fourth of all Asia. Their possessions consist of China proper and the vast tributary provinces of Mongolia, Tibet, and Chinese Turkestan, comprising altogether an area larger than Europe. This country is bordered on the south by Indochina and India, on the north by Siberia, and on the west by other provinces of Asiatic Russia. On the east, for 3,000 miles, it is washed by the Pacific Ocean, from which the land slopes gradually upward until it ends in the vast plateaus which form the heart of the continent. The land is thus one of mountains and plains. It has several low ranges running across it, and between them mighty rivers, which have so many branches that China proper is one of the best watered parts of the earth. The Yangtze Kiang, or Blue River, is to China what the Mississippi is to our country. It is navigable for steam vessels for 1,000 miles from its mouth, and the Huang Ho, or Yellow River, which sluggishly flows through the Great Plain farther north, although not navigable in places from its wide shifting channel, is almost as large. In addition to these, there are other great rivers and countless canals, so that most parts of the lowland can be reached upon boats. Moreover, the country is such that railroads can be easily built. Within recent years, some long trunk lines have been constructed, and in time China will have a network of steel tracks such as we now have at home. The cars are quite comfortable, and many of our journeys will be made upon them. China has mighty resources. Its mountains contain rich beds of minerals, including gold, silver, nickel, copper, and tin, and its coal and iron deposits are unequaled by those of our country. The soil is so rich in many places that it yields three crops a year. Much of the land is irrigated, and the rich earth washings of the mountains brought down by the rivers are carried through the canals over the land, making it produce many fold. Indeed, China has such varied resources that if it were walled off from the rest of the world, its people could satisfy their every need from within their own boundaries. In addition to this, the country has an excellent climate, although this differs according to the locality as much as that of the United States. On the high plateaus of the west and north, it is as cold and dry as in any part of the Rockies, and in the south, it is as warm and moist as Louisiana or Florida. Wheat, barley, and millet thrive in the north, while in the south rice and cotton are among the principal crops. On the cold highlands the people wear sheepskins in winter, and on the southeastern coast they can go barefooted at Christmas. The rainfall is varied. The winds blowing in from the ocean meet the cold air of Tibet and drop their burden of moisture, so that the main body of China has plenty of water. Going on westward, the still colder air wrings the winds drier and drier, until, when they reach the high plateaus, they have no more rain to give. Hence we find there vast deserts such as those of Gobi and Tibet, and the arid lands farther west. You would naturally expect a rich country, walled in by mountains and seas from the rest of the world, to have a race and civilization of its own. This is the case with China. It contains more than 400 million people 
who have a character and customs unlike those of other races, and who had created a civilization long before the time of Athens or Rome. This civilization, until within a few years, was not affected by ours, but now the Chinese are adopting the best things of Europe and the United States. They are building railroads, introducing machinery, and making other changes similar to those we saw in Japan. Nevertheless, the old China is still everywhere present, and our travels will be like going through a new world. We shall begin our investigations in the northern part of China. We go back to Seoul and from there to Chimulpo, where we take ship for Tianjin, the chief port of North China. The distance across the Yellow Sea is not long, but we stop on the way at Dairen and Port Arthur in Manchuria, two little cities now controlled by Japan. From there we steam on not far from the coast and enter China by the little Pei River, awaiting high tide to take us over the bar at its mouth. The stream is narrow and winding, the land is flat, and the Pei curves in and out like a snake so that we can see both in front and behind us the white sails of Chinese boats marching, as it were, over the fields as they move along through the river. We are now in the Great Plain, which extends from the valley of the Yangtze to the mountains north of Peking, skirting the ocean and running back into the interior, in places as far as 400 miles. The soil here is exceedingly rich, and it is said that it supports more people than any other area of like size on the globe. It is largely composed of a yellow earth known as loess, which contains lime and decayed vegetable matter. There are great beds of it in the mountains farther west which are supposed to have been made by the dust blown from the highlands of Central Asia. These loess beds are very porous and the winds carry their dust over the Great Plain, and the rivers also aid in distributing it, making the land wonderfully fertile. The Chinese sink so much of this fat yellow soil that one of the titles of their emperor, who formerly ruled, was Huang Ti, which means Lord of the Loess, and they chose yellow as the imperial color. Most of the Great Plain is low, and as flat as a floor. We can see for miles on all sides. The country is made up of farms without fences, and spotted here and there with small clumps of trees surrounding the mud villages which are the homes of the farmers. The banks of the Pei River are dotted with little cities and villages. We often float close to the houses. They are almost all of one story, and some of them are not more than 15 feet square. Their walls are sun-dried bricks, and their low, slanting roofs are of reeds plastered with mud. The houses are built close to the streets, which are narrow dirt roads without sidewalks. In some places, the houses extend out over the banks of the river in such a way that the floods often wash out the foundations and drop them, families and all, down into the water. The streets of these towns are swarming with yellow-skinned people. We see merchants in black satin caps and gay-colored silk gowns, and workmen in shirts and wide-flapping pantaloons of blue cotton. Their queues are tied up to be out of the way. We see bareheaded women in coats of green, purple, and crimson, below which are bright-colored trousers and little silk shoes. There are almond-eyed children dressed like their parents, some playing about and others watching the steamer go by. The poorer boys are more than half naked, and we tremble at their danger as we see them wrestling together, 
rolling each other over and over at the very edge of the water. As we go in, we observe that the roads which run from village to village are lined with people of all classes, conditions, and ages. There are half-naked porters who go on the trot as they carry great loads, balanced on the ends of poles which rest on their shoulders, and we now and then pass ladies on their way to call on the neighbors. Their feet are too small for them to walk comfortably, and they ride on the backs of their men-servants. They wear red or pink slippers, and their little feet bob up and down out of silk pantaloons as they hold on to the necks of the bearers. We see Chinese gentlemen riding in sedan chairs slung between poles, and small-footed old women who totter along with canes in their hands. There are hucksters with baskets on their way to the markets, and laborers and peddlers of every description. We observe that hundreds are at work in the fields and get our first glimpse of the industry of the Chinese, which is unsurpassed in the world. The numbers increase as we go up the river, and at Tientsin we find scores of brawny laborers ready to handle the freight at the wharves. They carry the huge boxes and bales out of our ship, all grunting and yelling together as they raise and lower their burdens. As we look closely at them, we are surprised at their strength. They are taller than the people of the southern part of the country from where the Chinese of America come. Some are six feet in height, and some can lift 500 pounds at a load. Tianjin is the New York of North China. It is the chief port of the Great Plain with its many millions of people, and also of Mongolia, to which country the goods are carried by railroads and camels. It was Tianjin which constructed the first working railroad of China, and it now has trunk lines which connect it with Peking and with Mongolia, Manchuria, and Siberia, and also with Hankow, Nanking, and Shanghai, and other cities in the rich Yangtze Valley. Tianjin is already as big as Philadelphia and has many factories and schools. Its people are gradually introducing the ways of our civilization, and as we go through, our guides point out the changes, saying that China will be soon as far advanced as Japan. We are anxious, however, to see the civilization of old China, and tell our guides that we wish to travel in Chinese style to Peking. They reply that the railroad will take us there in less than three hours, but that in the old ways the journey will require several days. We ask how we are to go. They tell us we can have ponies or carts, or if we would still go more cheaply, there are plenty of wheelbarrows. And do the Chinese ever travel on wheelbarrows? Yes, they are common all over the country. Vast quantities of goods are still carried across country upon them, and some of the barrows have sails, the pushers being helped on by the wind. We shall find many with men and donkeys harnessed in front, thus aiding the owner who stands between the handles and pushes hard behind. The Chinese wheelbarrow is different from ours. The wheel is in the center of the bed, and there is a framework over it with a ledge on each side. The passengers sit on the ledges, or there may be a passenger on one side and freight on the other. I have seen wheelbarrows with a hog or sheep tied to one side, while on the ledge opposite rode a pretty Chinese girl with flowers in her hair and rouge on her cheeks. I try one of the wheelbarrows and conclude it will not do for us to risk an eighty-mile ride upon them, and as the ponies are shaggy and rough, we tell our guides to order carts. In time they come up, each pulled by two dirty mules, harnessed one in front of the other, 
and driven by a Chinese who sits on the shafts. What clumsy vehicles they are! The wheels are twice as heavy as those of our drays, and the shafts are as thick. The bed rests on the shafts without springs, and over it is a framework covered with blue canvas forming the roof of the cart. This is too low for us to have seats beneath it, and we get in and sit on the floor. There is no support for the back, and when we attempt to lie down, our feet extend out at the front, disturbing the driver. The mules start off on the trot, and we are almost jolted to jelly by the ruts in the road. The dust is so thick we can taste it. Our lips become dry, and when we lick them, they are straightway coated with clay. We are tired out before we have ridden ten miles, and are glad now and then to climb out for a walk. We ask why there are no better roads, and are surprised to learn that this is one of the best highways of China. The country has four thousand roads, but most of them have been so cut up by these heavy vehicles throughout the ages that they are no better than ditches. They are filled with dust when the weather is dry, and when wet they become rivers of mud. We are told, however, that the people are beginning to want modern roads. Some of them have traveled abroad, and at their advice the government is urging the provinces to improve the highways, and most of the cities and towns are laying new streets. We shall see stone crushers and steamrollers in Peking, and shall learn that new roadways are being made everywhere. As we proceed, we pass frequent villages. The farmers do not live on their farms, but in villages of squalid houses with fences of mud about them. The buildings are of sun-dried brick, roofed with reeds tied on in bunches over which mud is spread. We stay overnight in one of these towns at a native hotel, whose surroundings make us think of a barnyard. Our rooms are in stable-like sheds built around a court filled with donkeys and camels. The donkeys bray at all hours of the night, and the camels cry like so many babies. Our bed is a brick ledge about two feet high, which fills one half of the room. It is heated by flues running under it, and we are alternately roasting and freezing. The fuel is straw, which burns out very quickly, and the brick bed is stone cold before a new fire is lighted. There are no springs and no bedding. We turn over again and again, and at daybreak get up with all our bones aching. Starting on at six in the morning, we ride and walk until dusk, when we find by the increased number of wheelbarrows, donkeys, and carts that we are approaching the great capital of China, and far off in the distance we see the walls of Peking. Our journey has lasted two days, but we have had a taste of real China, and the trip has been well worth the discomfort it cost. End of chapter 14